0: It's good to be here with you this morning. I I gotta tell you, I walked in with a renewed sense of excitement. I was at a conference this week that really convicted me about some things in my life that I wanted to see change. And this morning, I want to deliver a message that really is about the same thing, that sometimes we walk into spaces like this and we don't expect for anything to change. We don't have any expectation of God showing up. And I want to Invite us this morning to anticipate what God may do, what God may call us to. We've been in a series called Worship Wars. This is the last message, and I really want to call us to a point of decision this morning. Uh, And maybe this is one of those things that you've never made a personal commitment to. You realize that I've I've kind of been going to church, but I've never really committed to Jesus as Lord. This may be uh, the morning where God would call you in a unique way, and and maybe many more of us that have made decisions and yet have kind of fallen away from that, have have found other things that have really enticed us away from a full commitment to Jesus, uh, I, I just, I'm just i trusting that God's going to do something this morning. I want to invite you into that expectation uh, in just a moment. I also want to ask, uh, this was a little bit of a confusing ask in first service, but well, let me try to clarify a little more. I want to ask if there'd be some who'd be willing to intercede just quietly during the sermon this morning on behalf of others, um, that, uh, that, that God would speak in a clear way and and bring conviction as it's needed. So can I have a few hands that would go up to be willing to to lift up that prayer throughout the service this morning? Thank y'all very much. Let's pray as we open our time in the Word today. God, we we ask today that as we conclude this conversation about the idols that have become too important in our lives, that we've, we've given too much worship to, that we would return to you again, that we would choose once and for all the Lord who would take that place in our lives. And we want that to be you. We trust that the best way of life possible is found in you. And so today, God, I pray you would uh, renew in us, God, a vigor for the life of Christ, uh, renew in us a commitment, renew in us uh, a single-mindedness, a single pursuit. I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. Uh, I want to read from Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, which is really what launched this whole series about idols. It's pretty simple. There's not any way to really confuse or misunderstand what God calls us to. This is the first of the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, that's as clear as it gets, but it's amazing how often our worship, we're in in wars for our worship, and there are other things that compete for the place that only God should have in our lives. The question is not if we will worship. The question is what or whom will we worship? And that can be God, it can be, uh, it can be uh, other things in our lives. And so today I want to d- drill back into this, and I want to start with a quote from an agnostic uh, guy named David Foster Wallace, who wrote a now famous, or gave a, a now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. And he has a quote in that message that struck me as we were going through the series on idolatry I wanted to share. He said in that speech, he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. And I found that to be a convicting word because the reality is none of us are atheists. No one in the world is. We all find our value, our worth, we all give our worship someplace. Or as St. Augustine put, centuries ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And my guess is this morning there's some restlessness in in our souls and our spirits, right? Right? There's a sense that things aren't settled. There's a sense that we still have these divided loyalties. And this morning, that's my prayer, is that we would, we would leave today less restless and more convicted that it's Jesus that we ought to give everything to. Well, there's a theme in my preaching that if you haven't discovered it yet, you'll hear it again and again. And the theme goes something like this. In our culture, I hear the message over and over again in subtle and obvious ways that the Bible is a document that's really regressive and behind the times that God really didn't know what he was talking about when it comes to 21st century culture. And I got to tell you, I reject that completely. I believe this book and, and the God behind who inspires the words of this book still today is actually the most revolutionary force on earth and is always pulling us forward into his future, which is ahead of anywhere culture is. In fact, it's the gospel that calls us to faithfulness in the culture in ways the culture can't even call out. And one of the ways that we see that happen actually starts with the first four words in the entire Bible. Most of us have at least made an attempt at reading through the Bible, or at least the book of Genesis. And we've at least gotten through these four words, right? What is it? It's in the beginning, God. And that's one of those places in Scripture that is this revolutionary leap forward. Because every other religion in the ancient Near East, in the time where the Bible's being composed, doesn't believe that phrase. They would add an S on the end of that fourth word. In the beginning, gods. Because these were polytheistic religions that believed you really cover your basis by adding as many gods as you possibly can. And so you cover all your bases. you got the sun god. you got the fertility god. You've got the rain gods for your crops. You've got, you got the Nile god in Egypt. Uh, Babylon would see it this way. No one tried to say, you've got to choose. No, that wasn't the choice at all. The choice was all the different gods that are out there. But in steps this new word, this new revelation through Scripture that says, no, 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 in the beginning, God. Yahweh, who actually creates all of this by name. And Egypt never forced you to choose between the gods. Babylon never forced that decision. Rome never forced that decision. Each of these cultures was polytheistic. But there's something about the Judeo-Christian faith that said, no, it's found in one God. There's a choice you have to make about where your loyalties lie. Because our story demands a choice. In fact, the first commandment out of the 10 says that, right? You shall have no other gods before me. So if you're a Christian or if you're thinking of becoming one, what you're signing up for when you do that is you're you're making a decision to give your loyalty to one place rather than to all places. And this struggle we find over and over again in the Bible between exclusive loyalty to one God and, and the desire to worship after other gods or idols Of the other nations. Israel struggles with that again and again. But God demands exclusive loyalty, and God's people don't always want to choose. I want to talk about several of the Old Testament stories, uh, points of decision that the people of God, the prophets of God, try to proclaim over their people to say, You've got to make a choice. You can't. It's not both and. This is an either or proposition when it comes to faith in this God. The first of those comes that I wanted to point to today in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses is coming to the end of his life. He's freed the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. And they're now free and they're headed toward the promised land. But Moses isn't going to get to enter the promised land with them. And so he gives them this choice at the end of Deuteronomy before he leaves them to go into the promised land. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 30 verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if, you are not, if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice, hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. He will give you many years of the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did you hear the choice? The choices between life and death, the choices between God and the other gods the nations that they're going to enter into. But you can't do both. You have to choose. Well, after they enter into the promised land, they've made their choice, but all of a sudden there's more options that open up. And so Moses' successor Joshua says a real similar thing at the end of the, the book of Joshua, at the end of his life, he, he gives this choice again to Israel. This is Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Some of you may have this verse actually on, on, on your homes in certain places. It's become an important verse about choice. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Again, there's another choice, right? The God of the Amorites, gods beyond the river from the past, or or this God Yahweh that we choose to serve. And Joshua says, For me and my house, this is who we're choosing. There's a choice to be made. You can't choose both. Well, the story goes on and there's another prophet later on in the story called Elijah, and Elijah has this scene that's a great story. Most of our VBSs over the years get to this story at some point. It's a contest between the prophets of Baal and Asherah and God, and, and they're up on Mount Carmel. I want to read a little bit of that story about the choice that Elijah tries to make clear. This is 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, who's the king, and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. (laughs) You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Again, there's this choice, right? You've got Baal on one side and you've got Yahweh on the other, and he gives this choice to the people. And what's the response to the people? Nothing. And I wonder how many of us this morning are really in that place. We're, we're, we're given this choice, but the truth is, I'm not sure. It really would be nice to have a plan B. It really would be nice to hedge bets. It really would be nice to have both of these gods, but that's not the choice that Scripture gives. Jesus does a similar thing in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he preaches that message. I've, I've shared this before in the I sermon about wealth that I did a few weeks ago, but, but Jesus clarifies very clearly about masters and, and the choice that's there. You cannot serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve two masters. No one can. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You hear the choice? You can serve money or you can serve God. You can't choose both. You have to choose one. And some of us are still trying to ignore this obvious choice that's been given to us. We, we want to try to hold on to both things. Maybe some of you feel like, yeah, well, I'm wavering between opinions. I'm not sure where to make a decision. If you want to serve two different gods, you understand this. But the first four words of Scripture tell us it's about one God, this story. Now, at one time, Israel was tempted to worship idols. And I've never personally been tempted to worship a statue or an idol. We've talked in this series about how idols have evolved, but I want to remind us about really the foolishness of worshiping idols, and maybe then ask the question, how does this apply in twenty-first century culture that may look a little different? But listen to this description, Isaiah 44, about what idolatry really is, the foolishness of it. This Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9. All who make idols are nothing. The things they treasure are worthless those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand and they will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool, works it in with, uh, works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry Loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it, he prepares a meal. He roasts his meat, eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. For the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. Their minds closed they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say half of it is used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is this not the right thing in my my right hand to lie? Remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant. I've made you. You're my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. That's ridiculous to think that we would worship a statue, right? I mean, something that we've created with our own hands, we would bow down to. But as we've noted during the series, idolatry has evolved a bit over the years. Think how crazy this is. There, there are places where people create in their living rooms sitting spaces in a circle around a statue. How odd is that maybe we aren't as evolved as we think we are. There's nothing wrong with television. Nothing wrong with, I, this is how we have our living room set up, but there comes a point where you realize that there's some things that are tugging at you that may become more important than these statues. So yes, we've evolved in some ways, but in many ways we haven't because we still have the same struggle. Some of us are tempted to turn to, to people, to spouses, to children, to, to others in our lives to, to fill us up in a way they can't do. We've talked about that. Some of us are drawn to wealth and that in that wealth we find security or to the tribe that we think maybe this tribe can secure us when all tribes fail in the end. Or, or some of us have, have looked to pleasure or experiences and we thought that if we could just find the right experience or the right amount of pleasure, then surely we'd be filled up. But every time after that pursuit, we, we leave empty, don't we? We seek power, control, approval, and and comfort through these idols. We've talked about that. But the only secure place to find our life is in God. So how do we choose to make that decision? How do we put all of our hope, our joy, our identity, our security in God rather than these tangible things we tend to put them in? Which takes me back to a story from 1519, a long time ago. It's a story about a a conqueror, an explorer, who wanted to overtake the Aztec Empire. And so he's making the last leg of his journey from from Cuba to the Yucatan Peninsula. And and so uh, people for 600 years have been trying to overtake and take this great treasure of jewels and and gold and silver, all of the Aztecs have have brought together. And and over and over again, they come and they fail. And so this explorer named Hernan Cortez comes over and and he he comes on land and he didn't want mercenaries to come on this voyage because he wanted people who would give everything to try to take the treasure. He was trying to give them a vision of how their lives would be different if they would take this adventure on, they would defeat the enemy and they would take the treasure from them that no one had been able to do. And so he gave them a vision about how their family line would change, about how their story and their name would be told for centuries in the future because of their bravery. And so they get on the ship, but about halfway across, you know how most of these adventures go. You're excited to start until you get homesick and seasick, right? And so they're starting to wonder, should we really give our lives? They finally make it to land on the Yucatan Peninsula. And they're drawing up battle plans and Cortez the morning of their, you know, fight is about to tell them what their strategy is and he lays it all out, but in the end he says three words that change everything. He says burn the boats. Burn the boats. Now, what's Cortez trying to say to these guys? He's trying to say, there's no second opportunity. There is no plan B. We came here on ships, and it's either conquer or it's die. That's your choices. And in the end, Cortez and his army end up defeating the great Aztec empire. They take this treasure that they had desired to have. And I think back on a story like that, I'm thinking about this whole idolatry thing. I'm thinking, there's a connection here. That seems foolish. Why would you burn the boats? Why would you destroy your transportation? But Cortez was trying to send a message to his army, to his men to say, you might be tempted to retreat, but you've got no temptation now. There's no turning back now. With no transportation, their options were one, to die or to go through with the mission. Here's the lesson from that story for us. When you only have one option, When you stop hedging your bets, when you stop playing it safe, all of a sudden you can go all in in a way you haven't before. But what's interesting is Cortez was not the first to employ this technique. About a thousand years before or more, uh, there was a guy named Alexander the Great who had done a similar thing going into Persia. He burns the boats in the same way, and Cortez had seen how this had worked. But the thing is, history repeats itself, and so Alexander the Great wasn't even the first to do this. In fact, the story that we read in Scripture tells us a similar story. If you have your Bibles, turn with me if you would to 2 Kings chapter 18. It's a story uh, in the Old Testament about Hezekiah, who becomes the king over Judah. Listen to these words. This is Second Kings 18, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Listen to what he did. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord the God of Israel there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah either before him or after him There's Asherah poles in Jerusalem People are worshiping other gods in the city of his ancestor David the great king So what does Hezekiah do? He says we're burning the boats we're cutting down the asher poles. We're breaking down all these things. We're getting rid of them. You're not going to have a choice because when we worship Yahweh, there's no plan B. There's no second option. When you choose this, the first commandment is, there are no other gods before me. And Hezekiah ensures that's what happens. You have to choose. Well, a few chapters later, it's funny how the story repeats itself, right? Because the asher poles are back up. Bad stuff's going on in the temple of the Lord. Listen to all that is going on. And then this king Josiah steps up. Maybe you've heard of him. He's an amazing, amazing story. 2 Kings 23, beginning in verse 4. Listen to all that Josiah does, the radical nature of what he does when he steps in to becoming king. The king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priest next in rank and the doorkeepers, to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the king of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations, to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole, guess where it was, from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were, guess where, in the temple of the Lord, the quarters where women did weaving for Asherah. There's a brilliant idea. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the gateway at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which was on the left of the city gate. Although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. So no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan-Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. He pulled down the altars the king of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces, and threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption. Great name for a hill, right? The ones King Solomon uh, of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. Josiah smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Ashtoreth poles, and covered the sites with human bones. What's Josiah doing? Josiah's doing what God requires. Josiah is choosing. And too many of us are not choosing. Rather than choosing, many of us remain silent in moments where we need to speak up. Rather than choosing, many of us dabble with idols, risking everything and thinking we're risking nothing. Rather than choosing, many of us nurse idols and worship God at the same time. But the God who created the world and commanded us to have no other gods before him still waits on us to make a choice. It's time to decide, church. And it's a funny word, that word, decide. I had a, a guy in my church in Denver named Tyrone who was this kind of sage voice. And he had these funny things that he would say that I don't know if they were true or not, but they were, they were memorable. And one of the things he said was about, he said that, that word decide, I'll never forget this. He said, you know what the word decide means? Uh, it, it comes from a root that means si- side, which means to kill, right? Like pesticide or suicide or homicide. That's what side means. He said, so what does it mean to decide? And he said, to decide is to kill all other choices. Now, if you were to go on Google and check up the etymology, I'm not sure Tyrone's right about that, but I like his message. Because that's exactly what deciding is, isn't it? We live in a world full of choices. We live in a world that says, have it your way, and you can have everything all at once. But the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to decide. It's to choose. And in the temple of the Lord, all of a sudden you have the Asherah poles. You have these male shrine prostitutes, You have all kinds of things going on in the temple of the Lord. And when Josiah comes in, he goes, no, no, no. We're not having boats that we can get away with. There's not a plan B. We're burning the boats. We're cutting the Asherah poles. We're getting rid of all of that because there's only one God, and we're going to serve him only. When I married Holly, I stood on a stage. I've talked about this in the series, like many of y'all have. And what I said was, I'm deciding on you. And what that means is, I'm choosing to say yes to you. And a yes to you means a no to everyone else, right? And when we go into a commitment to God, that's exactly what we're saying to God. We're choosing you. We're deciding. We're killing all their choices. We're cutting out all their options. We're burning the boats. There's no plan B because all of our life is going to be found in you. So this morning, we're ending this series on idols. And, and I know there's some of you that may have never made that decision. You may have never committed yourself fully to say, I'm all in on Jesus. And this morning, I want to I invite you. I want to give you a chance this morning to respond. We don't do that every way from the stage every single week. We always have a time of invitation. Our prayer leaders will be glad to receive you as well today. But I'm going to be down front today. If, if maybe this is the day that you've never made that decision, you've never said no to everything else, you've never burned your boats, there was always a, a second chance that you thought, maybe I can get away if God doesn't come through. I want to I invite you this morning to choose, to decide. To, to, to say that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to make all of my decisions through him and, and, and I'm going to be baptized, I'm going to die to my old self and all of that filth and all those decisions from the past are, are washed away as I'm raised to new life with one Lord. This morning I'd love nothing more than for some of you to make that choice for the first time. So we invite you to do that in just a little bit when we have this next song that we'll sing together. I'll be down front to receive you. Our prayer leaders would love to talk with you more if you want to talk about that decision. But but many more of us have made decisions already. It's just that asherah poles creep up after you make decisions sometimes. And those idols have been planted and they've kind of taken root maybe in your life and you've, you've never really said, you know, this is it. There there needs to be no more of that in my life because saying yes to Jesus means saying no to everything else. And so maybe it is uh, something you want to, again, rededicate, you want to recommit, you want to choose again to say, it's really God that I'm all in with and I, I'm not trusting these other things. And so, We'd love to pray with you about that decision or, or, or just, you just sing that, say that to God in your own prayer of recommitment today, choose, but there's something about stepping forward and making a commitment. And so we'd, we'd love to receive you during this next song. If that's a commitment you want to make, our, our prayer leaders are here every Sunday praying throughout the service, praying that you'd come and you'd share whatever it would be. They'd love to, to lift that prayer up with you to know what it is that's going on. And so during this next song, we're, this is a time of invitation. And uh, if, if this is a choice you want to make to be baptized into Jesus this morning, come, come, let's make that decision. Uh, if you want to talk more about it, I'm glad to, to, to spend more time with you this week and see what that may mean for you and your journey. And maybe some of us, many more of us need to recommit. That's what I've done this week is recommitting to making this the sole focus of my life. I, I'm, I'm choosing. I want to be a man who's burned the boats in my life. I want to be a man who, who has no plan B because Jesus is it. I know many of you desire the same thing. Let's, Let's uh, pray as we make these commitments uh, together. Father, I thank you for uh, the choice that you give us, that that we're not creatures where you've decided everything for us, God, but part of what it means to be a loving God is you step into risk to where we may reject you. We may choose other gods and and God, it doesn't turn out well for us is what we found. So God, I, I pray today that you would Receive the choices that are being made in this room today. Some are going to be more public, perhaps, and some may be more private, but we've got to pray that these choices would be serious, that we would, we would burn the ships in our lives, God, that we thought we may have a plan out, and we're going to go all in today with you once again. So God, receive the prayers of your people. Convict those who need conviction. Encourage those who need encouragement. God, wherever we find ourselves, we trust that you are moving us in just the way you desire through your Spirit. We, we welcome that, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.